0: Who here has four or more children? Yeah, what's what's that like? Uh, I was, I was. Lauren is not pregnant. Lauren's not pregnant. Um, but you know, every once in a while, you think you know people lie and they say things like, "Oh, well, once you have three, it's it's all downhill." But then somebody sent me this little clip of a comedian whose name I won't mention because I don't want to make it sound like I'm condoning them. But um, he has four children, and he said having a fourth was like being in a river and drowning and then someone throws you a baby um, and so um, uh, <laughs> is that is that true dr it's true it is true david david you had all yours at once in one fell swoop oh gosh yeah 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 yeah. that's right oh my gosh um, um okay well you highly recommend it. That's great. Okay. Well, let us pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace and your mercy that it is sufficient for us, and we pray that you would open our eyes uh, to what you would have us uh, to hear today, and that it would take deep root in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, last time we were together, we, um, we talked about Acts chapter 10 and Peter's crazy dream, <clears throat> uh, where He was there, and he was on the rooftop waiting for something to eat and um, received this vision uh, at the home of uh, right there. in. um, uh, He had this vision uh, in Joppa over by Tel Aviv at Simon the Tanner's house. And there uh, this sheet comes down and all these different kinds of animals are on there, clean and unclean according to Levitical law. And God's voice says to him, get up, kill, and eat, and Peter says, no way, no way, because I know better. I'm a good Jewish boy. I'm not going to go out there and uh, eat those things, and uh, the Lord says to him, uh, do not call anything that I have made unclean, and so what, um, what do we do with a passage uh, like this, especially in a day and age where it seems, uh, well, it doesn't seem, it is. I mean, even within the church, we have folks who are saying, well, I understand that that's what Scripture says, but that's not what it means because God has changed his mind about this or that or the other. And so this morning, I want us to take a look at how does God reveal himself to us? Uh, how is it that we know that, one, that, that it is God that is revealing himself to us, uh, but also what are the modes and methods, that, that what are the ways in which God reveals Himself to uh, the world and to His people. Well, I mean, in the very beginning, uh, God reveals Himself to us as, as a trinity of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We read that when it refers to God uh, in uh, uh, the book of Genesis. There's the plural there, and even God says, let us make man in our own image. Let us uh, do these types of things. And I've had um, several... Uh, uh, folks that I'm close to who are Jewish, and I've talked to them about this, and they said, well, it's more the the royal we. And I suppose that could be true, but I said, or it could be the royal trinity. Um, <laughs> Uh, but uh, be that as it may, something for them to, to think about. Um, but that God manifests Himself in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is is no, nothing arbitrary. It's not a mistake. It's not sort of, well, that's just kind of how it happened. It was a very deliberate thing uh, that happened in the way that God revealed Himself uh, to uh, His people. Uh, and, and it's for all times and in all places. So this whole notion uh, of the fatherhood of of God... Uh, for some people, let me just say this as an aside, is a difficult thing to grapple with, especially if uh, you've had a bad father figure or a non-existent father figure. And and for that, I'm very sorry. Um, And especially, so when we talk about God as father, it may be very difficult for you uh, to be able uh, to relate to that. Uh, in a way uh, that is positive. Uh, But there are a number of Christians uh, who uh, had terrible upbringings that were able to relate to God as Father and found it not just comfort, but life-changing because where they didn't have uh, an earthly father or an earthly father worth acknowledging, uh, they had a heavenly father uh, who was not confined to the terms of earthly fatherhood. It wasn't a projection of earthly fatherhood on A Heavenly Father. In fact, one of those people, we sang a hymn written by him this morning and we heard uh, an anthem, uh, Henry Light, who wrote um, Abide With Me. And uh, Henry Light, some of you already know the story because I'm sure I've told it before. Uh, Henry Light grew up in a very well-to-do family and when he was a little boy, his dad left them. Uh, His dad uh, just left them and then his mother died shortly after that. And so he was placed in in an orphanage, but ended up going to a very good school, and the headmaster, who was a wonderful godly man, took him under his wing and basically uh, was there for him in the midst of his life. Uh, But his father, who was still alive, had remarried and was starting a family with another woman, and Henry and his dad kept in touch. Uh, But when Henry's father uh, wrote to him at school, he always signed the letters, Your Uncle meaning that Henry Light's father never let his son call him dad, uh, but but at best, uh, uncle. And so somebody like Henry Light would have every right to say, I don't like dads. Uh, and yet what he found uh, through the ministry of this headmaster in a personal relationship with God uh, was uh, a heavenly father who is completely unlike his earthly father, one, uh, but even those of us who have very good earthly fathers, God is still so much more and so greater uh, than that. I mean, you see that in Genesis, that even when um, that awful scene in the fall where uh, God says, you know, who told you you were naked? And then Adam says what? This woman... Uh, and then she says, this snake, and you can see it sort of moving down the line, but what Adam actually says that is often lost is he doesn't really necessarily cast the blame just on the woman, but what he says, what does he say? This woman whom you gave me. It's your fault, God. If, if I want my rib back. You know, it's, if you had just uh, not done. And so God would have every right to say, I'm done with you people. I'm absolutely done with you people. But even in the fall, uh, you have this uh, wonderful word from the Lord that uh, to the serpent that one day there will be one who comes uh, and you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. So even in the Garden of Eden, you begin to catch glimpses of what? Jesus, right? Jesus, the one who would come and crush the head of the serpent. Uh, But God in his mercy... um, makes them close. He, he makes them close. And yes, they have to be cast out of the garden, uh, but if you keep reading uh, to Cain and Abel and beyond, uh, God never absents Himself uh, from the life of His people. He's always there caring for them uh, in a way that often His people think, as my children would say, this is unfair. Right? And there are times where it feels like God has absented himself, where he's turned his face away, especially in things like Duke basketball. Uh, I mean, the fact that they beat UVA last night really challenged my faith. I didn't know that I could get up here and teach like I believe this morning. Um, uh, um, and someone asked me once they said, if you saw Coach K drowning in this torrent of a river, flailing, would you use black and white or color film? <laughs> and um, so I say that for all you do, people out there. Uh, season's not over yet. So, anyway, uh, there are times where it seems like God has turned away and absented himself, but what you see is that, that God doesn't do that, that he's always there. If anybody's moved, it's his people. And even then, and there's this idea in our mind, well, we'll behave and get our acts together, and then and then God will bless us uh, again. Uh, so uh, there's a, a wonderful cycle throughout the whole of the Old Testament that's really prevalent in the book of Judges, where it says the people rebelled, something really bad happened to get their attention, They repented of their evil, and God sent them a judge. And uh, what that means is not a judge like, now I'm here to judge you, although they did do that, uh, but more a deliverer. Uh, A deliverer has come. Uh, But there's a little bit of a hiccup, which is indicative, and again, uh, an indicator of what God would do in Jesus, that that's the case in almost, really, all of the judges in that book, except for one. I already took Kathy out to lunch. lunch. This is a lunch prize. You know what, if you guessed, you'd get it right, Gideon. So uh, with Gideon, it says the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and then the Amalekites and a bunch of other people came in like locusts on the plain and did everything that they, uh, you know, that they were going to do, uh, so much so that it. Uh, where did God find Gideon? In the wine press, threshing out wheat, which meant he was hiding so that the enemy wouldn't see him. He was being a big chicken is what he was being. Uh, so God finds him in his chickenhood. But the interesting there, thing there is when he raises up Gideon as a judge, he doesn't wait for the people to repent. He just does it. He just sends a deliverer. He doesn't wait for them to sort of get into this place where they realize they need the Lord. They cried out, but they cried out in a way of, this stinks. Right? We don't want to be in the situation we're in rather than an actual heartfelt, this is our fault. This is our fault. It was somebody else's fault. But God, in His mercy, sends uh, Gideon uh, as a judge to deliver them, uh, and so on and so forth uh, throughout the entirety of the Old Testament uh, until we get uh, to Jesus. Now, with Jesus, I'm not really going to get into the Trinity today, except to... I mean, it's always there, but uh, He's always there. But The whole idea, you know, some people have this idea which is referred to as modalism that God is somewhat like an actor in a three-act play. Like act one, he's the father. Act two, he's the son. And now in act three, he's the Holy Spirit. But what we know is that uh, the Trinity, uh, the Godhead is co-eternal. So in the beginning, there was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, throughout eternity. Uh, No beginning, no end. uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet, God the Son takes on flesh in this instance and invades the world at just uh, the right time. Uh, It would be, I think, a theologically appropriate thing to say in the Old Testament that God is knowable in, in His properties. Now, I don't, you know, sometimes we take this whole thing about, you know, uh, what a friend we have in Jesus just a little bit too far. Um, You know, there's a very funny book out that's meant to be uh, humor, uh, and it's called Coffee with Jesus, and it has these little vignettes with Jesus in his coffee cup. Um, And so I think that we might take that a little too far because there is a part of God that is difficult to fathom. There are mysteries. There are things that we don't understand, uh, even though God has come near. But in the Old Testament, uh, God was not able to reveal what the Bible calls the Shekinah glory uh, in such a. Uh, he was not able to reveal it. Why? You die. You would die, which is why, again, when the high priest on the Day of Atonement would go into the Holy of Holies. Uh, they would, uh, and, and sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant, uh, they would tie a rope around their ankle because in case God revealed himself, you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, and um, and if that happened, like all the priests are kind of, not it. You know? So they tie a rope around the ankle, so if, if something bad happened, you just reel them on in, uh, and then uh, you just say, you think he finished? Yeah, he's finished. He's finished. Uh, he got it done. Uh, so uh, even uh, when uh, Moses encounters uh, the Lord in the wilderness, uh, Moses' request is, I want to see you. I want to see you. And, uh, and uh, the Lord says, y- you can't. You can't. In fact, in one instance, he says, I will, I will pass by you. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock And I will talk about a prefiguring of Jesus. I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will pass by you, but you can't look directly at me. You'll be able to see my presence as it goes by, but don't look, Uh, but don't look. And indeed, uh, what Jesus has been able to do by coming in the flesh is uh, He is that hiding place, that cleft that actually allows us to look full upon the glory of God, uh, but through Him. And so all of a sudden, uh, the God who is far off, who speaks to his people, uh, who intervenes in the life of his people, uh, who is there for his people, even though uh, they turn astray. He, God goes to some pretty great lengths to talk about this. So in the book of Amos, uh, what does he say? Uh, I'm sorry, uh, in the book of Hosea, what does he say? Yeah, Amos. Uh, what does he, who does he say to Mary? Gomer. I want you to marry a prostitute named Gomer. As if Gomer was not a bad enough name, uh, she had to be a prostitute and Shazam and so um, um, so I mean in this illustration of um, this illustration of the faithful prophet and the bad thing about Gomer is she said, "Look, I love you but i 'm going to i 'm going to keep my business going i 'm going to keep my business license and uh, i 'm going to keep working and and the prophet just being broken by that and being a very clear illustration of uh, God's faithfulness to his people, even in the midst of their unfaithfulness. And so the incarnation, the coming of Jesus, uh, not only uh, makes... I mean, God has come near, but just how amazing that is to think that the God of the universe... Uh, has come near. Now there is something appealing in the ancient world about Judaism. And what we see in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius the Centurion who's a Gentile, what they called a God-fearer. In fact, uh, I don't want to be too hypercritical, but I'll say it. Uh, The way that the God-fearers were then is sort of the way that most Jewish people are today. Uh, They really didn't keep many of the laws. They kept, they, they avoided barbecue and things like that. But there's a very funny story. But uh you know a joke of one of my cousins who is jewish he said um, i said well you know people talk about grades of judaism and and he said well i'm jewish like the olive garden is italian <laughs> and um, but somebody told us in Beaufort once that uh, they were over at a at a, a the, who is jewish uh, now they're all episcopalians and uh, they um, uh they were over ha- they were having dinner and there was a knock at the door um, and uh, the father went and answered the door as they were about to sit down to the table, and the father said very loudly, good evening, rabbi. And with that, the mother got up, threw the window up and threw the pork chop platter right out the window. <laughs> and um, uh, so, but the god really were God-fearing uh, Gentiles. They, they didn't participate in temple worship, but they believed in, in the God of the Jews. Uh, in 1 Corinthians this morning, we heard... Um, Paul is talking about meat sacrifice to idols, and he makes this comment, and he says, uh, "There is only one Lord, but we know that there are other lords and other gods he 's not saying that there 's a pantheon of gods in the universe, uh, but uh, what he 's saying is that there are these little gods in our hearts right what he 's saying is that of course, there are idols." all around us, but we know that there is one God. And if you're a Roman and you're inclined to religious devotion, how hard is that going to be? Because uh, the whole idea of of gods and goddesses, uh, and of course uh, the Romans and the Greeks were on the same page with this, was that basically not only did you have to behave, which really wasn't um, a guarantee, uh, because the gods were capricious and arbitrary, uh, but you had to go and play pay homage to them, burn incense, do all of these things. And so if, if that's uh, the case, you can understand why you would say, I want a consistent God with some stability. Right? I want something that, that is much more... Honestly, uh, the thing about God's sovereignty and His providence is that it's not that God is predictable, uh, but His will is knowable. Right? His will is knowable. And so Cornelius, the centurion, is a god fear uh, believing on uh, the God of Israel, and Peter is sent uh, to witness to him because now uh, not only is God's will knowable, but he himself has become knowable. I preach this uh, for a Christmas Eve sermon, uh, but the whole idea that, you know, if I were God, uh, I'd come on the scene, like, riding this huge white horse with a flaming sword, yee-haw, here I am, I've, I'm, you know, here's my crown, Uh, But he doesn't come in power and great triumph. He comes as a baby, right? The most vulnerable stage of life in human existence, right? So here is this uh, child who is uh, knowable, uh, holdable, and killable, right? So when uh, Herod slaughters the innocents, uh, an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph and says, what? Go. Go to Egypt. Get out of here. Go. Why? Jesus is killable. So they go off to, they go off to Egypt, and he, he grows. We don't know a lot about uh, Jesus' uh, childhood. There are some uh, other Gospels out there. Maybe you've read the uh, infant, infant Gospel of Thomas. If you ever took a, a historical Jesus class in college, you probably had, had a little book called The Other Gospels, which is just a compilation of those things, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene and things like that. Um, and in and, and uh, the infant gospel of Thomas, instead of climbing trees, uh, Jesus would make the trees bend down to him, and he would simply climb on the top, and that's, that's how he did it. And the early church rightfully said, there's something not right about this. Uh, and, um, and we're actually going to talk about why certain things made it and certain things didn't in a little bit. Uh, but uh, we don't know what he was like at Nazareth Junior High School or, or what he was, he was up to. Uh, but, um, but we do know that, um, and I don't think it's sacrilegious to say this, but um, Jesus required sleep. Uh, at Nazareth Junior High School, Jesus had acne. Uh, Jesus was awkward and gangly uh, as, as he went through uh, puberty. And that is the crazy thing about God taking on the flesh. It's not like you can you can't divide Jesus and say, well, these are his divine things, and these, you know, it's it's all uh, it's all in one. And so the incredible omniscience and omnipotence of this baby clothed in vulnerability. And so. That's what really startled a lot of people when he went to the, uh, to the synagogue in Nazareth and read from the scroll that was from the book of Isaiah and said, This, uh, this prophecy has been fulfilled before your very eyes. I'm the one who Isaiah is talking about. Um, what was the response? Yeah, wasn't that Joseph and Mary's son? Who does he think he is? I know that guy, right? I know him. Uh, and so for those people, the ability to know God personally uh, and intimately at, the, and at that level uh, was just was just too much. Indeed, when any time Jesus would say that He and the Father were one, or anything, uh, you know that people around Him would tear their robes as a sign of you know this is this is blasphemy. This is not uh, this is not um, the way that uh, that, that things uh, are supposed to go. Uh, and indeed, with the religious system of the day it worked better if God was far off because uh, then it would be left to you and you were kind of on your own and you'd make your own list of what you needed to do and what you didn't need to do. Uh, Keeping the Levitical law was hard enough, uh, but the teachers of the day added layer upon layer upon layer uh, of the implications of of those things. And they gave Jesus a very hard time about those things. Remember, uh, healing somebody on the Sabbath. Here's somebody dying and in need, and Jesus heals them, and they said, that was bad. Or on the Sabbath, walking through a field of grain, and Jesus and His disciples plucking the heads of grain and eating them, and, them, and then the Pharisees and scribes saying, that's illegal. Uh, that's illegal. Uh, better that you would starve to death uh, than, uh, than uh, to violate uh, the law of of the Sabbath. And yet what you find in Jesus' ministry is this constant pursuit of those that the Bible calls sinners and tax collectors, but not just them, but also the Pharisees and the scribes. And yet they want nothing to do with him. Why? Because he interrupts their system. Being around him uh, makes them uncomfortable. It makes them feel small. It makes them feel vulnerable. It makes them want him to go away. And so in the gospels, you have a great, two parallel stories, one from Luke and one from John. And when uh, Peter uh, first encounters Jesus, they're out fishing. And Jesus yells from the side, have you caught anything? We've been out all night. No. Well, cast your nets on the other side. And you can imagine what Peter, like, this guy? Really? He thinks he knows what he's doing? Like, he can do better? And, of course, they they cast their nets on the other side. And they come up with this net that is so big that that it begins to break the nets. And what is Peter's reaction? Get away from me, Lord, for I am a man of unclean lips, for I am a sinner. Now, fast forward. Jesus has been raised from the dead. The disciples are confused. They don't know what to do, and so they only do what they know what to do. Let's go fishing. So they go fishing, and as they're standing on the shore, a figure yells, Have you caught anything? No. Cast your nets on the other side. They pull it up, the nets begin to break, and what is Peter's response then? It's the Lord. And again, I referenced this last two weeks ago, but I think it's so funny. Peter, the, he's such a doofus. Like the Bible, they go out of their way to say Peter puts on his clothes and then jumps in the water. Like what? <laughs> uh, you know, okay to swim, uh, but. Two identical situations, but two very different responses. Why? Uh, because Peter, uh, in that first instance, was still looking to himself for salvation. I don't have it all together. Here's someone who is mighty and powerful, who has come near. And when you're there, I tremble before you. But what happened between those events is that this personal relationship with Jesus began to occur And the gospel message of God being for him sunk down into his heart. So even though he knew that he was a man of unclean lips and a sinner, that when he sees Jesus, there's nothing that is gonna thwart him to get as close to him as possible. Right, and still knowing who Jesus is and acknowledging who Jesus is, and yet all of a sudden it's not, uh, Lord, if I see you, I might die, but now uh, my only hope and my only refuge Who I long to cling to. Now, Jesus uh, has died and has risen, has ascended into heaven, and now sits on the right hand of the Father. And he's now sent us a helper. And in John 16, he talks about this. I'm going to send, there are some things that I'm going to say to you that I can't say to you because you can't bear them right now. But there will be one who comes, and he will lead you into all truth. And He will affirm everything that I've taught you, and He will point to me, and He will point to the Father and lead you again into all truth. Now the disciples thought, well, that sounds nice. Uh, And they didn't understand the implications of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit being there all along. Uh, But now the Holy Spirit takes up residence uh, in us, in us. So here's the crazy thing and the crazy thing that came out of Christianity and was rediscovered at the Protestant Reformation and that some people still think is crazy. Um, How does God reveal Himself to us now? Primarily, He reveals Himself to us in His Word by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. So the churches believe that the Bible that we have in front of us is the inspired Word of God. Not that the people who wrote it were possessed by God and like robots writing it, uh, but God worked through them that their words were not their words, but in fact uh, the words of God. But now with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, it's not just, okay, this is a sacred text, but the Holy Spirit of God speaking to you. When the Protestant Reformation came along and the Reformers said, Every person should be able to have the Bible and read it on their own was crazy talk to the medieval church. Why? Because the medieval church said, no, 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 no. You've got to have someone telling you what it means. But the Romans said, but what about the Holy Spirit? Do you not trust God enough to allow the Holy Spirit uh, to lead us into that truth and to confirm uh, what the Bible says? Uh, And even if people are in error over its interpretation, uh, do you not trust that God, uh, through whatever means he chooses, even direct intervention by the Holy Spirit, uh, will begin to shape and move that? So in the church in Ephesus, we'll get to this around uh, um, Acts 17, um, there was this preacher that came to Ephesus after Paul named Apollos. And Apollos was a really good preacher. Well, I should say he was a very good communicator, but he didn't know what he was talking about. Because remember at this time, in the early church, they didn't have, like, we really take for granted this, right? I mean, it's, if you lose one, you know, just go to a hotel room and take it out of the drawer. I mean, it's just, uh, they're, they're everywhere. Uh, but at the time, I mean, very few people actually had the entire Old Testament uh together. Again, Jesus they read from scrolls and things like that and they were passed around. And these letters and the Gospels especially were beginning to be circulated in the early church Uh, but Apollos uh, didn't really know any better. And so uh, God used uh, Priscilla and Aquila, two women, uh, to, uh, to pull Apollos aside and say, we need to talk. Uh, and, uh, and they were the ones uh, that God used to show Apollos uh, what it meant to have salvation in Jesus, who Jesus was, what He had done for us. And, uh, and Apollos, from what we... He was like, yes, the Holy Spirit confirmed in him. Of course, uh, this, uh, this is uh, what God uh, is saying uh, to us uh, today. Now, in this text, in Acts chapter 10 what is the meaning of the sheet coming down with all these animals? Uh, That is God saying to Peter that there is no longer a distinction between what was in the Old Testament clean and unclean. Now, Jesus had already talked about this. Uh, Remember in Mark chapter 7, uh, Jesus said to his disciples, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out, right? Cleanliness is not about externals, cleanliness is about what's, what's in here, and we all, not only, it's not just a deep scrub, right, it, you need a heart transplant, you need to be totally changed from the inside out, and when you're changed from the inside, then externally, you begin to show forth the fruit of the Spirit, uh, working uh, in your life, and so when, and yet, um, You know, a little saying from where I'm from, and certain family members have said this about me, so I feel like I can say this. Uh, You can take the redneck out the woods, but you can't take the woods out the redneck. And with Peter, it was just too hard for him to get away from that because those laws were the identity of the people of Israel. And why God gave those dietary laws to the people of Israel was because it did differentiate them from everybody else. If you were a Gentile living in Israel, you were not required to keep kosher. You weren't required to uh, honor the Sabbath laws. You weren't required to... do. And actually, it's not until recently that Judaism uh, has taken on a tone, especially in Jerusalem, where they are trying to enforce uh, Judaic law, Levitical law on non-Jews. So you hear about ambulances coming into certain quarters of Jerusalem on the Sabbath and, and certain Jews will start throwing rocks at the ambulance uh, because they see that as a violation of the Sabbath. Now, that's the nth degree of differentiation, uh, that we are different. Uh, but with this, with Jesus, your identity is no longer in your ability or your attempt to keep the law, but your identity is now uh, in Him, that God is no respecter of persons. And so there's no differentiation. In fact, Peter gets it. He understands what God is saying because we're going to get to this in a couple weeks where Peter says to the other apostles, God shows no partiality. Now that is an explosive statement. Not just, I mean, in our day too, uh, but, uh, but in that day, what do you mean God shows no partiality? The whole Old Testament is about God showing partiality uh, to His people Israel. And yet, what Peter is saying now is that of one blood has God made all the peoples of the earth. The church is His people, which is regardless of of your ethnicity, of your race, of your gender, of of whatever it might be, uh, faith in Jesus Christ is is what qualifies you to be a child of God by adoption, through Him, through His grace. so it's explosive then, but it's also explosive now to say that God shows no partiality uh, because I even find myself saying God loves that person a whole lot more than, than He loves me. And rightfully so. You know, think about people like Mother Teresa. Right? Don't you think that she's a little bit closer uh, to the throne of heaven uh, and yet um, we hear from God's Word that not at all. Not at all. That God's love for you and his focus on, on you is just as fierce and intense as it is from those who we think of as saints. In fact, the New Testament says, if you're a Christian, you're a saint, whether you like it or not, you're a saint. And so there's no respecter of persons when it comes uh, to Jesus, that the gospel is for everybody the gospel is uh, for everybody and so Peter after receiving this uh, this vision uh, goes out they work in Samaria he and John are primarily there and it all finally comes to a head after Paul and Barnabas come back after their first missionary journey uh, we'll get to that uh, that was that was ugly um, but uh, but God's truth prevailed uh, in that in that situation now, as an aside, uh, in the last couple minutes, uh, let me talk to about the canon of Scripture. Um, so, okay, God shows Peter this dream, and I understand what Jesus said in Mark chapter seven about, you know, there's no such thing as clean or unclean foods, and Jesus' uh, very uh, deliberate violations of Levitical law in his own ministry. Uh, but this thing in Acts chapter ten makes it sound like. Well, why couldn't God just do that now? Why couldn't God uh, reveal something to Andrew where he comes in and says, God has revealed to me that the youth are to wash all of our cars on Sunday mornings and just line them up, uh, leave your keys in the Now, that would be a wonderful thing, wouldn't it? Uh, but, uh, and I'm being a little bit silly, but uh, that has been a belief that has been held by certain religious groups. For instance, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, they do believe in a progressive revelation that, that God has just changed his mind about that. I mean, that's what the Book of Mormon is is about. Uh, and even today within the Christian church, there are those that, uh, that say, well, God has changed his mind about this and that or the other. Uh, but the problem is, and I'll just speak personally here, if I had a minister who got up and said, you don't have to worry about that because God has spoken to me and said he's changed his mind about that, that would make me very nervous about any preaching. Like, well, how do you know God hasn't changed His mind about that? Or well, why hasn't God changed? Like, what, what? do we? how can we be certain uh, that God means uh, what He says? Now, that's not to say that there aren't difficult passages, and there aren't passages that ought to be taken within uh, their cultural context. For instance, when Paul writes to the Corinthian church, and he says, I want all women to be silent in church and I don't want you to have braided hair, and I, you need to cover your head, and you don't need to be wearing gold adornments. Is, and, and some people have, and this is the difference between taking the scriptures literally or plainly, I should say, the plain meaning of scripture, and taking things literalistically. All right. so there are some churches uh, out there who uh, don't have uh, an organ in their church and don't believe in musical accompaniment, why? Because the Bible doesn't talk about that, right? Or I have a friend, I don't know if I mentioned this, a friend who's the minister of a Baptist church and his church burned. And so they had to, for a short time, uh, go to school. And because they only had the school in the morning and not the evening, typically on the first Sunday of the month in the evening, they would have communion. But because they didn't have access in the evening, they started doing communion in the morning, the first Sunday of the month. And half the congregation revolted. And do you know why? Because they said the Scripture clearly calls it the Lord's Supper, not the Lord's Breakfast. (laughs) Now, we we laugh, but that would be a literalistic uh, reading of Scripture, not a plain uh, reading of Scripture. So with the Corinthian church... Paul is speaking to a very specific situation there where Corinth was a real shady town, lots of prostitution, lots of crazy things going on. It was a Navy town, honestly. It was. And, um, and um, they... Um, did someone say the Marines? That, that, was, that was not funny. So um, uh, the, I think it was Leland Hole's voice, but uh, <laughs> spoken like a true man from Navy medicine. Uh, but the... Um, but you had, uh, in that day and time, gold adornments and braided hairs were signs of prostitution. And, uh, and, and indeed, there was a sort of sense of, of being pomp and blown up, and even in the Corinthian church, stratas of class regarding wealth. And so what Paul is saying is, well, when it comes to how you dress in church, stop shaming your brothers and sisters in Christ by wearing ornate things. Uh, don't dress scandalously in church. Don't think that just because you're in you're in Christ, and this actually may be applicable today, uh, especially on Christmas and Easter. Uh, you should think about the length of your skirt. Uh, you should you know you should think about these types of things. Uh, when it comes to the women in church, the church uh, speaking in church in that context, there was a situation in the Corinthian church where they were worshiping like the Jewish community traditionally worship, where men were on one side and women were on the other, and if there was this thing that was happening where if a woman didn't understand something, they'd get up and they'd say, well, wait a minute, what's that mean? And they would interrupt worship. And so Paul said, wait till you get home and talk to your husband about it. Uh, And yet uh, a lot of people will say, well, see, that just goes to show you that that the church has changed its mind about that. But I don't think the church has changed its mind about any of that. Um, So there is an issue of context. But the, the scriptures that ended up coming into... Uh, the Bible uh, came into the Bible and sealed up the canon uh, because they were things that the church had already believed, right? There was nothing in there that that we don't believe this. And indeed, things like the Gospel of Judas and some of the other things contain things that are not Christian, and so they got rid of them. Uh, They were apostolic. They were either written by apostles or written by someone working directly with an apostle. Uh, And indeed, uh, they were used by the church at large uh from the very beginning. Uh so they were circulated, they were moving round and round. And so a lot of people will say including, you know, they get this from Dan Brown, well, the Council of Nicaea, the church voted uh what books would be in and what books wouldn't. But what we forget is that they actually weren't worried about what books made it in and what books didn't make it in. What they were worried about is the message consistent with the teaching, ministry and person and work of Jesus Christ. Is this God's word to us? Is is the message there? Who are the authors? What's going on? And so it wasn't so much as a voting as it was. These are already the accepted books. It wasn't actually this big, controversial thing. And the only reason why it happened so late is because of why. The church didn't have the authority to do it until then. Who called the council at Nicaea? Constantine. The Emperor Constantine called it, and he said, y'all got to sort this out and codify it and get it all together so that we can begin to understand what this notion of orthodoxy is, and the church was happy to do that, but the church didn't have a mechanism by which they could do that at that point. It was actually the state uh, that began to do that, and that's a whole other issue. Uh, so, um, so when it comes, uh, it's very interesting. I would encourage you to read uh, the church fathers. About, about the scriptures and how they just don't get hung up on the stuff that we do uh, about things. Uh, and I, I was about to say something that I don't think would be very helpful, but... Um uh, but go go and read read them and so how has God manifested himself to us he's manifested himself to us through the Trinity of persons the Holy Spirit continued to work and operate in us today uh, through uh, God's Word he becomes real to us he speaks to us uh, and we hear him and because the Holy Spirit dwells within us we have the ability to discern uh, what is of God and what is not of God and with that I would ask for questions, but I'm not going to because I have to go to work. Uh, But uh, let us pray before we go out. Uh, Lord, this was probably like drinking from a fire hose this morning. Uh, And yet we pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, you would sink deep in our hearts the truth uh, of your word. And Lord, where we feel like Peter and struggle, uh, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Uh, Lord, that we would cling close to you, and even where things uh, don't make sense, uh, Lord, that you would make sense uh, uh, in our minds, uh, but uh, above all, Lord, that we would look to you and lean not on our own understanding. And it is in your name we pray. Amen.